Good evening and welcome to the other side of midnight. This is Kinthea, producer and co-hosting with Jonathan Womack, author and publisher. And our show tonight is The Strange Case of George Hunt Williamson, contactee, conman, or spy. And our, our wonderful guest tonight, you probably, many of you know him, is Dr. Richard B. Spence. I consider him our resident historian. He's often spoken about World War II, our relationship with Russia, the Middle East, and the secret government. He is um, a professor of history at the University of Idaho. His interests include Russian and military history, along with espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. His major published works include... Boris Savikov, Savnikov, Renegade on the Left, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Alistair Crowley, British Intelligence and the Incult, and Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. He is the author of the revolutionary of articles in revolutionary Russia, intelligence and national security, journal for study of anti-Semitism, American communist history, the historian, New Dawn, and other publications. He has been interviewed on numerous programs and has been a commentator, consultant for the History Channel and the International Spy Museum. Radio Liberty, and documentaries produced by the Russian Cultural Foundation. Welcome, Richard. It's so good to have you back on the show. It's great to be back, Cynthia. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> so you really perked my interest with the topic tonight, and I'm just so curious. Who is George Hunt Williamson? Well, uh, I guess I can start off by saying that if people have heard me on the show before, this is somewhat of a, of a departure of what I talked about previously. And it's actually one of these things that touches upon a whole series of, of things that my research has, has taken me into. And, and somehow George Hunt Williamson just kept cropping up. He was just one of those things that kept reappearing and made me curious enough to look into it. What he's probably best known as, for anybody who sort of looked at, I guess, what's called the golden age of flying saucers or the golden age of UFOs from around 1947 to the early 1960s, he's one of the one of the the three American Georges, who are sort of one of the there's George Adamski and there's George Van Tassel and there's George Hunt Williams. Williamson. And then if you want to add a fourth George, there's the British George King. I don't know why all these guys had the name George, but they, they mm. do. And so he's generally given credit for being one of the early contactees, although one of the interesting things about Williamson is that when pressed, he would admit that he never actually met an extraterrestrial in the flesh, that his contacts had basically been through telepathy or Ouija board or radio contact. They'd been more on a kind of spiritual level than on a physical one. But, you know, that's one of the things that we'll probably get into this evening is that um, that's what Williamson said on one occasion. That isn't necessarily what he would say on another one. Because I'll tell you, Kinthea, I've dealt with, you know, my research takes me into for a whole variety of probably unhealthy reasons into things like occultism and espionage. Those, those are the kind of, you know, dustier or darker quarters of history that I, for some reason, I, I tend to be drawn into because they're interesting. That's why. Mm -hmm. And I've run across, I think my fair share of shady characters or dubious characters. I have not run across any in, in the worlds of espionage or occultism that I have looked into, into those corners that quite really come to the same level as George Hunt Williamson. And, you know, I mean, there, there, there are two very different views on him out there. Um, I mean, there's one that basically holds, he's, you know, uh, a con man or a charlatan. Um, 
And if he wasn't a con man or a charlatan, then he's someone who is, you know, simply a, a narcissist. Um, and and a uh, and then the other side, you have the idea that well, uh, this person is just a pathological liar. I mean, you can use the term uh, a a mythomaniac. That's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. The person is a, myth, a mythomaniac, or <laughs> a, a British friend of mine likes to call them a fantasist. Um, mm. And I guess the the difference between a pathological liar and a fantasist or mythomaniac is that probably the fantasist or mythomaniac doesn't quite realize that they're lying, whereas the pathological liar does. Mm. But I don't think we're going to try to get too far into, well, we'll delve into some sort of, you know, pop psychoanalysis about Williamson. But what really interested me about this guy is that there was... It was, was trying to figure out what the there that was there about him, uh, what sort of things could be could be confirmed, um, and and one of the things that began to make me beginning to sort of piece things together, I, assembling his career was like most of the things I work on. It's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. That's that's one of the ways that I've sort of described my approach to historical research. It's it's putting together a gigantic jigsaw puzzle. Mm. The difference between the kind of jigsaw puzzle that I'm putting together with someone like Williamson and an ordinary, not an ordinary jigsaw puzzle, it comes in a box and it's got a picture of what it is you're trying to put together. So you know what, you know what you're after, you know what the end result is going to be. And you have all the pieces. <laughs> and, you've got, and, you, and you've got all the pieces. That's it. And, and when you're done, then you're done. There are no more pieces. And also the other advantage, you've got edge pieces. And I think mm-hmm. as we all know when we put together a jigsaw puzzle, you try to find those edge pieces. You try to frame the picture. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're doing this sort of jigsaw puzzle of research, you don't have a picture that tells you exactly what it is that you're looking for. And you don't know how many pieces there are going to be. In fact, there are generally more and more pieces that come along, and you don't have any edge pieces. It just continues to extend unevenly and amoeba-like in different directions. Mm. So I sort of decided I was going to try to figure out as much about this guy as I could because, again, he seemed to be sort of flitting around the edges of other things that I was interested in. And I'll go back there. There's sort of two things that came together. Maybe this is one of the ways I could just two sort of serendipitous things that began to bring George Hunt Williamson into some kind of focus for me. One started about a year ago when I had a conversation with a friend of mine. I think he's still a friend of mine because the conversation got a little heated. Mm-hmm. And it was basically about another person entirely that you may have heard of, and hopefully some of the listeners have heard of, uh, another kind of dubious character in his own right, a guy by the name of John Whiteside Parsons, better known as Jack Parsons. And he, again, touches a number of bases. Uh, John Whiteside Parsons was active in the late 40s, early 50s. He's probably best known for two things. One, for being to the American rocket program and thereby the space program. Uh, a, a kind of self-taught, uh, explosive expert, uh, rocket engineer, the guy who's generally given credit for coming up or at least making a functional solid fuel rocket engine uh, during World War II. Uh, one of the sort of founding members or one of the people who came in in the, the base of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. So he was that. He was a, a, uh, a scientist, but he was also a practicing occultist. He was one of the mm-hmm. followers of someone you just mentioned, Aleister Crowley. And so uh, Parsons is, is both his figure in the kind of occult world and also in, in the world of, of science and, and engineering. Well, what our discussion was about wasn't really about either one of those things, but whether or not Jack Parsons, in addition to his other feats, was a Soviet spy. Oh. Now – if this all started out as a kind of hypothetical, the idea was that, well, what kind of a case could you actually make for that? Okay, so let, let's and, – and I would sort of put myself in the role, okay, let's, I, I'm going to be prosecutor. I'm going to try to put forward what I think would be the case based upon the circumstantial evidence that we have that John Whiteside Parsons, 
rocket scientist and occultist could also have been an active Soviet agent. And my friend was going to take the sort of opposing view that, no, that's just silly. That really couldn't be. No, he, he, he could uh, come up with some better arguments than that. And I have to admit that when we started the conversation, things that were just a kind of exercise. And, you know, by the end of it, I have to admit, I hadn't totally convinced my friend, but I'd pretty thoroughly convinced myself. I'm not sure well, that that means much of anything. Yeah. So do you think he got heated because? He wasn't winning the conversation, or now his faith was shaken. Well, I'm not sure that he carried any great. He he preferred to see Parsons in a very different light, mm-hmm. and and I and I think uh, since he isn't here to talk for himself, and he probably wouldn't want to be, I say that part of his whole argument was based on the idea that well, you know, Parsons just wasn't that clever. All right. Oh, uh-huh. uh, he didn't really see him as someone. He didn't see some as someone as who was. You know, he wasn't like morally beyond that. It's not just one of those things he just wouldn't do because he was wasn't that kind of a guy. No, his basic view was that you know Parsons wasn't that clever. Uh, Parsons was was too erratic. I think was one of his ideas. He was he was too erratic and inconsistent to to function in that role. Um, but nevertheless, I was still fairly persistent in my view that no. Maybe he just seemed to be erratic, or maybe the fact that he was erratic didn't really matter into this circumstance. So I guess how does Jack Parsons fit in with with George Hunt Williamson? Well, one of the things that fits in is that it brings in rocketry and the large, thriving, in fact, burgeoning aerospace industry in Southern California immediately after World War II. And I suppose I should say, since I brought it up, I without you know, it may be a, a, a topic all of its own. But but why did I think that, or why do I think that that Jack Parsons could very well be a Soviet spy? So I want to make this clear: I'm not proclaiming that he absolutely was, because there's no way that you would ever be able to prove that unless you get into the KGB archives, which would be a hard thing to do. But I think that there is sufficient circumstantial evidence in terms of his known associates, his own temperament and activities, and his access to things like this burgeoning aerospace industry to suggest that he was. I don't know. One of the main things that I would go back to is that in the late 1930s, you know, as the world was coming up on World War II, and in which much of the world, even in the U.S., was sort of coalescing into, well, either a, a kind of the, the pro-fascist camp, the anti-fascist camp, or the, the great indifferent camp, perhaps between those two. One of the things that Jack Parsons and a number of his friends at Caltech became connected with was the Communist Party. And some of them joined the party. Apparently Parsons didn't. But they are all part of a group which was headed by a guy by the name of Sidney Weinbaum. Now, that name's not going to mean much of anything to anyone, but Sidney Weinbaum uh, was another, another engineer connected with, uh, uh, with, with Gauss and, and with uh, the California Institute of Technology. But he was also essentially an agent spotter and recruiter in intelligence. In fact, he was connected to something larger, which was the Klaus Fuchs Harry Gold spy ring. So Weintraub is, without a doubt, a Soviet agent, and his job at that particular time was recruiting talent, recruiting assets inside the American engineering and, at that time, aircraft uh, in industry, uh, and in particular in a place like, like Caltech. I mean, that, that's where you had a whole variety of some of the brightest minds around. And if you, and those were people who were going to go on and work on a variety of projects, you know, including things like the Manhattan Project, which would be very useful to have assets in. So that was so you you can you can put Jack Parsons and you can put his buddies Frank Molina and Ed Foreman, or at least Frank Molina, together with him at these these kind of impromptu party-led get-togethers, where the real purpose was for and. Also, Weintraub's assistant, a fellow by the name of Frank Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer's brother, 
in order to find these young men and these young minds they wanted to recruit. Now, so that certainly gives him the opportunity in terms of the motive. Well, you know, Jack Parsons was a contrarian. Jack Parsons was a man who saw the world in different ways. And he later admitted that he was very attracted to communism for a while, but says that he got over it. You know, he, he found Aleister Crowley. It was like his finding Jesus, I suppose, that, 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 that took him away. Or the question is, did it? Because one of the things that you could argue against Parsons being a Soviet agent is that, well, he apparently didn't join the party, and, and he dropped association with it after, after a fairly kind of short flirtation. That could be. But the other thing that that fits the pattern of is something else, and that was a person who became a secret member of the party. Okay, now, This is one of these things that sounds a little impossible. But actually more potent that way. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is – people who were considered to be – particularly if you were recruited, recruited for intelligence activities. Well, one of the things you didn't want to have hanging over your head was the fact that you were a Communist Party member and you went to party meetings every week. That might raise suspicions. Therefore, there were people who were recruited for the party and for particular special tasks who were basically then told that you must sever all outward connections to the party. You must disassociate yourself from it. In fact, under certain circumstances, you can even criticize it because you are to have no visible connection between the party and yourself because we don't want that interfering with the special work that you would need to do. So well, what I find – yeah. Go ahead. Well, so so the people that were in the party ongoingly, they would not really know that that's a secret party member. No, they would, he they, would be. They would be disconnected from him. They would be disconnected, and, and to most party members, this was a person who had simply dropped out and lost interest. Mm -hmm. The only people who would then be aware of it after that would be his particular contacts and controllers. The only people mm -hmm. who would know about it were those people who needed to know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, eventually what does Parsons do from that point? Well, he goes on along with uh, Molina and Foreman to form Aerojet Corporation, and they get contracts from the U.S. military. And during the war, they're producing uh, engines, uh, rockets for jet-assisted takeoff. Uh, eventually, at, towards the end of the war, Parsons sells out of Aerojet, forms a new company at Astra, also exploring into the realm of, of rocketry. Uh, he also has two security clearances to work on high projects after the war. First one, I think, for North American aircraft. And then later, and this is a point I want to emphasize because it's going to come up again, for Hughes aircraft. Oh. Because we're going to meet other people who have this connection to Hughes aircraft. And Hughes aircraft, you know, run by Howard Hughes does all kinds of classified work for the U.S. military, both during but particularly after World War II. And here you have Parsons who would do that if you were someone who recruited this kind of dissident maverick character, uh, he, he was positioned exactly where he wanted it to be. He was in the middle of all of this secret work that was being done on military contracts and aircraft and other things. He would have been an excellent agent. Well, one thing that I I have a question in my mind yeah. is why why would Parsons or Williamson what would be the payoff for them the draw is it is it a ideological or is Can it I a financial yeah please yeah. jump yeah. in Jonathan yeah somebody claimed that he doesn't have uh, enough cleverness to be a spy but it, I don't think it's you know how clever you are I I think these people. Their uh, impetus is sort of a backward sense of altruism. They think they're doing something good for, you know, whatever purpose. So it's more of a, uh, dare I say, spiritual, but yeah, just a sense of doing the right thing, I think, drives them more than being clever. Yeah, I think that's it's one of those questions that comes up a lot and that I've in, in, encountered in my work. You're looking at someone who's a spy. The question is, okay, what, why does this person spy? Why yeah. do they do that? Why do they, why do they betray? Because what this entails, of course, is that while you may indeed be believe 
yourself that you are serving a greater good in your espionage. The other point is that what that work requires is that you deceive and betray people around you and people who may be your friends. So you have to be prepared to do that. It means that you have to be prepared to lie and to deceive, and that has to become part of 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 your constant modus operandi you, you you have to be you have to be doing that all the time it almost becomes this kind of role you have to play i i think it can be a sense of all i think it can be a lot of things i i don't know whether there's any one thing that would make a person spy but the one thing that i find that's that's often mixed up in this that there's usually an ingredient you know there kind of simmering along with the altruism or the sense of a higher purpose but very essential is egoism. Mm-hmm. One of the great appeals of someone being is the appeal to their ego mm. because they are being asked to do something which has to be held in great confidence, which they often are told or believe is very important, which makes them special. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things is that if you're if you're actively engaged in something where you are on a regular basis deceiving people, if you are presenting a very different front than what the reality is, it, it gives you a sense of power. And the fact that that you have a certain grasp upon what the real situation is that the people around you around you don't. It's this the way that it was maybe put best if it was ever put at all, was by another spy, a British spy in the same period, a guy by the name of Kim Philby. And I don't know how many people out there may have heard of Kim Philby, but Philby was probably the greatest British trainer in history. Um, And Philby was recruited into Soviet intelligence before World War II, and what made him important was that he became, he worked his way up into the ranks of British intelligence. In other words, the Soviets succeeded in doing something that every agency really learned yearns to do is to place its agents inside the opposing agency, to have your own people there making decisions. And, you know, Philby, again, is a completely other topic, but let's suffice to say that he did tremendous damage both to the real activities and to the reputation of British intelligence that really only got solved when they brought James Bond along as a fictional character to clean all that up. <laughs> but, but but Philby was once asked, after he defected to the Soviet Union, there was a British journalist, I believe his name, Philip Knightley, and Knightley got an interview with him. And of course, Knightley, you know, the question you would want to ask him to Philby, you know, they're sitting there in Philby's Moscow sort of run down apartment. And, you know, and, and Philby's looking around, I mean, you know, Knightley's looking around and realizing that, you know, he didn't do this for the money. All right. right. Because, he, he's, because there's, there's no money here. He's, you know, he's. He's getting old, his health is declining, his alcoholism advancing, and he's now living in this kind of crappy apartment in a housing block in the outskirts of Moscow. So his question basically for Philby was, why did you do it? And Philby's basic response was that you never look twice at the offer of enlistment in an elite service. Oh, the ego thing. And that's the ego thing. And, you know, Philby could claim that he always had, you know, that he was ideologically a communist. He'd been attracted to the communist movement when he was in university. But yet, you know, even some of his Soviet comrades didn't really accept the idea that Philby spied for some sort of ideological satisfaction, for his own satisfaction. It's something within this person that makes them want to do this. And that's one of the things. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, hearing of this great theft, this thief who was stealing this art, and his his payoff was that he could get away with it, the thrill of getting away with it, more than owning the art. It was like he could do it. Yeah, it's it's the uh, it's the adrenaline. Maybe that's more difficult as well. Right. Um, The idea that you can manage a, a sense of a sense of sort of power. And, and access that other people that don't have. And that's something I think that would have been 
in Parsons' case, very appealing to his kind of aggressive and volatile personality. You know, Parsons was a guy who saw himself in some ways a kind of a war with the modern world. He saw himself as a spiritual and sexual rebel, and uh, and, and and his of, uh, of Crowley's Thelema was an example of that as well. But I think it would have it would have appealed to his nature. You know. It would it would fit his nature precisely in in order to to give him that kind of rush of mm-hmm. being a spy. Now the thing was, you know, with with Parsons is that Parsons got two security clearances, and the reason why he got two security clearances is that he lost the first one and he ultimately lost the second one. And why did he lose them? Because in both cases he had been found to be, well, let's see, essentially taking home classified material. Uh oh. Well, all right. That gets so pretty. When when you get caught twice, okay, you get caught once, and you lose your security clearance. I would think you would learn your lesson. Right. So if you get caught twice, you're either well, as my friend might say, just not clever, or it's because you are doing it deliberately. You are doing it because it is your job. Right. Now. That sort of sets the whole thing with Parsons, I would use to sort of set this picture that I think that there was a lot going on, particularly in the late 40s, from the end of World War II all the way up through the 50s, but especially in, in, the, in the kind of classic Cold War period of the early 50s. There's a lot going on, and the whole UFO phenomenon, phenomenon that emerges in that period is part of what's going on. And we come back from break – I'll give you my take on that, among other things. All right. Well, we still have a little time. Oh, okay. Yeah, we got three minutes here. Three minutes. Okay. <laughs> Two minutes. So, what, so, all right. So let me start out by saying this, is that I come at the whole UFO flying saucer thing from the standpoint of a convinced agnostic. All right? Okay. So I'm, I'm not approaching this from the standpoint that I'm trying to prove or disprove anything real acts to grind on this. This this is an area that is is one of those things that probably if I wasn't interested in, in in the sort of personality of Williamson and other factors around him, the flying saucer thing probably wouldn't draw me into it. And to me, what what is very clear is that there's a phenomenon that emerges. Okay, there there is a whole belief system. There are people who have experiences or believe they have experiences. These ideas spread. I mean, you know, apparently most Americans today, or a very large proportion of them, believe that the Earth has been visited by extraterrestrials. All right. Oh yeah. Despite the fact that really nobody has any physical evidence of that, but that's kind of remarkable if you think about it. It's remarkable that a belief has been widely created. And that belief has been created by a whole network of experiences, most of which themselves are, are kind of undefinable. But the other thing that gets mixed up in this, and you know, from someone approaching this from the sort of outside, from from, I'll put it this way: I'm approaching it from the standpoint of not someone who has an axe to grind about the issue. I mean, the, the material existence of UFOs isn't what I'm really trying to talk about. What I'm trying to talk about is the mentality of people who become involved in it and what else might be going on because, frankly, I think there are a lot of things going on simultaneously. There are people having real experiences, and there are fake experiences because the other thing that seems fairly apparent to me, particularly in many of these early episodes, is there's, there's a lot of fakery going on. I mean, so with that of, thought, I'm going right. to ask you to hold that thought. All right. Uh, we're on the other side of midnight. The show tonight is The Strange Case of George Hunt Williamson, contactee, con man, or spy. And our wonderful guest is Dr. Richard B. Spence. I'm Kinthea, producer, and co-hosting with me is Jonathan Womack. Catch you on the other side.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome you back to the other side of midnight. Our show is the strange case of George Hunt Williamson, contactee, con man or spy. And I'm suspecting we may have had some problem with Dr. Spence's Skype connection. Dr. Spence, are you still there? Okay. So Keith, we need to get him on the phone. Call him by phone number. Good. He's dialing. So we've been talking about, uh, well, while, while we're waiting, I just want to mention that Richard Hoagland is really wanted to be on the show tonight. He really regrets he couldn't. And he appreciates all the good thoughts he's receiving from all of you. I appreciate that Jonathan Womack has stepped in here to help me co-host and, um, I'm totally fascinated by what Dr. Spence is telling us. It's a, he always brings such depth to the conversation, don't you think, Jonathan? Yeah, he's a good speaker. You can tell he's uh, done this before, and he's very comfortable at it. So uh, it makes for interesting listening. Well, he brings such a background, detailed, I feel like. Uh, and there we go. Have we got you? Yeah. Okay, welcome back. Okay. I, I didn't hear any noise, so I don't know what that was. But It sounded uh, like, I don't know how, what the audience heard, but rainfall. on my side, it sounded like we were on a runway being dragged. Is what it sounded like. Yeah, that, whoa. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, well, welcome back. Okay. So you were talking about your agnostic point of view in regards to the UFO phenomenon and how people around the planet believe in that, and I invite you to continue. Well, I mean, the, the going back to what I was saying before, the phenomenon is real, and, and the phenomenon, is, it seems to me, is composed of a, of a number of things. Um, from the beginning, it always seems to have been composed of people who, you know, there have always been people who are, seem to be absolutely determined to believe and those who are absolutely determined to squash that belief as much as possible. Uh, a, a kind of battle over the the basic reality of the situation, which I think, think sometimes sort of loses the process that, that there really is this thing going on. I mean, put in the simplest form, whether or not people are actually having contact with extraterrestrial beings or having contact with strange beings of some kind with these craft, or whether it's all in their heads at some level, at least to me, doesn't matter. In other words, whether or not there's an external reality to this or it's all an internal reality, 
it is happening in people's minds, and, and it has managed to create an entire – I mean, look at the degree to which the whole idea of uh, space contact and aliens sort of pervades popular culture. Hmm. I mean, aliens have become stock characters in, in our yes. popular culture. We're, we, we, we think that we're, we, we're familiar with them in some form. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting to me, again, looking at this sort of from the outside, how that image, though, has changed over time. Because if you go back to this, you know, the golden age of, of flying saucers, as it's called, the, you know, again, the, the late 40s, I think, through the sort of mid-60s, and the period of the Williamsons and the Adamskis and the Van Tassels and others, the aliens that they come in contact with are, are all just, you know, like these beautiful perfect human beings and are, you know, they, they, and are just radiate sweetness and light. Okay. They, they have come to, to save earth people from their, you know, evil practices and desires. They want us to disarm and, and live in harmony and peace. Uh, in fact, yeah, my favorite whole, Martian. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the whole, you know, the, I mean, this is why, as Nick Redfern has pointed out in some of his books, why the FBI begins to investigate many of these people, including Williamson, because they suspect that in some way they're trying subtly to spread communist propaganda. Because one of the themes that constantly comes through is the need for total nuclear disarmament. Okay, Now, whether you think it's a good idea or not, but that, that's one of the things that – that was was continually pressed, but but the, these aliens, you know, like Adamski's Orthon and the rest of them are, you know, they're they're almost by by later standards, they're almost kind of comically naive characters in that they're the they're very often the kind of, you know, the the classically sort of blonde Venusian types, you know, mm-hmm. beautiful men no, right. and women. In fact, their, their physical attractiveness tends to be one of the things often sort of emphasized in that. And it's it's one of those things that certainly has has changed, and that I think the image very often of of aliens, you know, real or imagined today, is is much more mixed and even I think more predominantly sinister than it used to be. So the the image of a beautiful blonde men and women, you know, these these kind of uh, Venusian, Nordic lead, mm-hmm. but you know, but Nordic types. Uh, the benevolent alien has been replaced with the the image of the large-headed, sinister, gray alien, and, and it, it would be a kind of interesting, I think, cultural explanation to figure out when that turning point appeared. I mean, one of the things I can't find any reference to, you know, early on is that you know there are a fair number of people who claim to have had sex with aliens, but completely consensual. Okay, there's there's no mm-hmm. sort of abduction and probing going on. Uh, right. there's, there's, there's no concept that these people, that the, that the space brothers, which is the term for them, the space brothers of the space people want only the best for us, that they are, in fact, and this is a point we may get into, that they are uniformly seen as spiritually advanced over earthlings. And most of what they're actually trying to bring us isn't technology, but spiritual enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And that I think is one of those things. So it, it's a, it's a it was kind of a different world in this period uh, that that people. But I but I think it 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 made it very easy for sort of spiritual elements among Americans and people like Williamson and others to sort of feed it. There's there's a religious quality to what's going on, and I think that a lot of these people, Williamson and others, when they had these experiences or when they claim to have these experiences. What they're often talking about are things that, you know, aren't again like the more modern sense of uh, gray aliens abducting people and doing horrible experiments on them, but rather that this was a kind of, uh, it, it was a, it was like seeing an angel. Okay, mm-hmm. I think that's quite literally what they were talking about. So it was being basking in the radiance of these of these, uh, these spiritually advanced beings who were, were here for uh, for our benefit. So that's an interesting thing to contemplate as to as to why that has changed. Um, the another in thing that that was has been interesting, has kind of informed my view on this is how you're familiar with a thing called the Twining Memo. No, I'm not. Okay, 
The Twining Memo is one of these things. It's a memo dated 23rd September 1947. It's it's widely available out on the web. It's been declassified from the National Archives. And it's a September 1947 memo from General Nathan Twining to another Air Force general, General George Shulgin. Now, Shulgin was the head, basically, of Air Force intelligence or Air Force intelligence research. And uh, Twining was basically the, the head of what would become the, uh, the sort of air material command, the kind of technological side, the engineers and others who were employed in the development of, of new aircraft types. And with the Twining memo, now, one of the things, again, because of all of the, well, fakery, which comes in this, there are a variety of documents, there are lots of documents floating around. And very often, there are always questions of whether these documents are real or whether they're fake. The one thing that, so far as I've been able to determine about the Twining memo, is that its basic reality or legitimacy isn't questioned. It was declassified in the in the National Archives on the 30th of July 2003. I think, I'm not positive, that Stanton Friedman was the fellow who actually found it within the archives. But it's a very interesting document, and it gets overshadowed by others of kind of more dubious provenance. And But what it basically says uh, is this. It's basically a two-page memo and keep in mind, it's, this, it's September 1947, which is right after the whole sort of modern flying saucer thing is, is begun, because that really just started a few months before. You know, and let like, me add, like, I, yeah. just, I just posted it. It's number 11 in your item. Okay. okay. So anyone who wants in the future, they can refresh their browser. They'll find it number 11 under Richard's items. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So I've got my you know my little scratched up copy sitting here in in front of me, which I've highlighted the parts to read. But what this memo is is that the, the subject of the memo is the AMC, that is uh, Air Materials Command opinion concerning flying discs. So this is so early they don't even call them flying saucers. They're still flying discs because they're still mm-hmm. going by Kenneth Arnold and the Mount Rainier sightings. And remember the Roswell incident that, you know, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, but whatever it was that was going on is one of those things which was, uh, uh, which was, it happened just some months before. So this memo, which appears to be real, everything about it suggests that this is not something that someone has cooked up, uh, is, has some very interesting things to say. And essentially, what it was that Twining did was that he got a variety of people together, and he goes, I got personnel from the Air Institute of Technology and Intelligence and uh, Office Chief of Engineering Division and Aircraft Power Plant and Propeller Laboratories. He got all the eggheads of the Air Force together to look over what they had, which, keep in mind, by September 1947, wasn't very much. This, again, is very sort of early in the development of this phenomenon. It's not like they've had years or many, many, many sightings to compile. But basically, what it is, they, they looked over what they had, and, and the, the key points in it basically are this. He said, it is the opinion, remember, not a fact, but an opinion, that the phenomenon reported is something real and not visionary or fictitious. So they take it seriously. Then they add a little bit later that there is a possibility that some of the incidents may be caused by natural phenomena such as meteors. Okay. Then they go through the basic characteristics of what has been reported, and they say that, well, what has been reported are things with metallic or light-reflecting surface, okay, uh, absence of a tail, except in a few instances, circular or elliptical in shape, flat on the bottom and domed on the top, um, normally no sound, except in some instances there's a kind of low rumbling, and level flight speeds normally above 300 knots are estimated. So from what has been observed, that's what they think they have. Now, this is the most important point to make. And this is on page two. This is, this is under F. Twining and his team decided, it was their opinion, it is possible within the present U.S. knowledge provided extensive detailed development is undertaken to construct a piloted aircraft 
which has the general description of the object in subparagraph E, what I just described, the, the characteristics they've noted of these flying disks, above which would be capable of an approximate range of 7,000 miles at subsonic speeds. He then goes on in the next paragraph to say, any developments in this country along the lines indicated would be extremely expensive, time-consuming, and at the considerable expense of current projects, and therefore, if directed, should be set up independently of existing projects. The secret space program. Well, now that's what some people would see in it. But, I mean, his, his proposal here is that, well, the, the opinion is that, I mean, what's, what's interesting to me is that he's, he and his other, remember, it's not just Twining, it's the team that he's assembled. They're looking at these attributes of these flying disks, and they're not seeing anything they don't think they could build. All right? That's one of the things that kind of jumps out to me, is that now maybe they're dealing with limited information and certainly a fair degree of overconfidence and ignorance, but they don't say that this is something we've never seen before. They're saying it would cost a lot of money. But yeah, it is possible within the present U.S. knowledge to essentially construct something that would do what we we think we see these things doing. But you know, it would take a long time, and it would be huge a huge expense. Now maybe the whole thing ends there. But here's a question I would have for you: When has the military, especially when national security is involved, ever let expense expense stand in the way of anything? Never. <laughs> it's a simple fact that it would cost a lot of money. And, you know, and then there's the thing that well, it would detract from other projects. So if directed, should be set up independently of existing projects. Uh, you could read a lot of things into that. Maybe it should be run off the books. Maybe it should just we should try to keep it you know, from competing with other projects that exist. Uh, some other now, little elements that – yeah, go ahead. Is, is this like 10 years before the Brookings report and all the disinformation started? Well, this is – again, this is September 1947. This is like almost at the beginning. Mm. This is just after some of the initial sightings, which again, they, they don't have a lot of information to go on, but they don't seem to see anything that strikes – I mean never once in this do they say anything about this being of an otherworldly source. Um they go on to say that the possibility, the possibility that these objects are of domestic origin, the product of some high security project not yet known to us, basically, or this command. They're giving you know what these things might be. Well, maybe somebody else is working on them, which is also interesting because it means they consider the possibility that there could be other agencies, military or otherwise, in the U.S. government that is currently working on this stuff, but we just don't know about it. And if it was compartmentalized, they shouldn't know about it. Um, they also then note next that the lack of physical evidence in the shape of a crash-recovered exhibits, which would undeniably prove the existence of these objects. So according to this memo, they don't have anything. They have no physical evidence yet. They have only the sightings that they're going by. I think this is why this memo is very disappointing to people who want to believe that something crashed at Roswell. Uh, and then finally, the possibility that some foreign nation has a form of propulsion, possibly nuclear, which is outside of our domestic knowledge. Now, that's the one point, the only point in this memo that opens the door to non-domestic outside sources, you know, which could be extraterrestrial, but they're not – they don't really seem to be thinking about that yet. I mean, clearly what they're talking about, the possibility of some foreign nation – Okay, this is 1947. What is that some foreign nation that you would be wondering about? Mm. Probably not the mm. French, okay? <laughs> not the Italians, the Soviets, okay? That's, do they have something of that kind? Uh, and if so, is that something we would have to do? So what this – the interesting thing about this memo is that it's sort of it, – you know, the suggestion here – and again, they could be – completely wrong in their estimation. This was an opinion put forward by a committee on the consideration probably of a limited amount of material. And remember, as they say, no actual physical material to deal with, only descriptions of the behavior of these objects. But still, they think 
that they could build one if they had enough time and enough money that they could come up with it. So it great it does sort of you know bring up the interesting ideas. You could read into this that this was the beginning of some kind of secret development program. And if it was, it would have disappeared from view very quickly because if this was going to be a black budget project, it would have vanished from sight. But then, of course, you need to keep a way – you need to have a way to keep it vanished from sight. So how much of what follows after this could be disinformation put forward to cover up the project which is initially discussed here? Now, it doesn't mean it has to be, but it means it could be. Of course, it still leaves us with a question, though. What were those things they were looking at to get the idea that they could copy them? Okay. There's, there's always that thing that exists before you actually had the memo come into existence. So there's still that, that fundamental memory, I mean, that, that, that kind of fundamental mystery which is involved. So this is what I mean by the fact that I think there are lots of things going on. I think that there are various levels in what will eventually emerge within this the, the, in the early UFO phenomenon. And one of those could be, I emphasize could be, as opposed to absolutely is, but one of those could be that something like the Twining Memo or other documents or other reports began to create a black budget program to try to do what he says could be done which is to develop aircraft of that kind. And that was one of those things that would require a great deal of secrecy. And one of the things about secrecy is that uh, you, know, you have your bodyguard of lies. It would be necessary to create a number of levels around this to make sure that the basic project remained hidden. Now, finally, some people might be arguing, this brings us to where George Hunt Williamson comes into this process. So George Hunt Williamson gives a basic – was a, um, a fellow who starts out – I guess one of the things to do would be to sort of – you know, the question is to go back to the question of who he was. One of the things you find very early in his career is that he has a connection to the military. And more to that point, he has a connection to what will become the Air Force. And it's one of those things that remains a connection throughout most or all of his life. So, for instance, skipping ahead many decades, well, at least some decades in, in the future, into the 1970s, to Santa Barbara, California, where I was then a graduate student in history at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And I was in a thing called the Balkan Studies Program. Uh, my major professor was a, a fellow from Yugoslavia, from Serbia, by the name of Dmitrija Georgievich, and most of the people there dealt with Eastern European or, or Balkan issues. And among them were a number of people who were former military officers. And and one of the fellows who was one, you know, much older than the rest of us, a guy probably maybe in his early 50s by that time, um, was uh, a master's student in the same program, had some kind of interesting connections with East European emigres, which I never probably paid enough attention to at the time. And, But he was also a retired Air Force officer, and he was the fellow who probably sometime around 1974 or 1975 very briefly introduced me to a fellow and I barely remember the name, he called Michael Dobrenovich. All right? It was, I can't describe it. It was a very fleeting meeting. It was just like, it was, it was some sort of, I, I've racked my brain trying to remember exactly where it was. And it, it might have been at some sort of reception or party at this officer's house because sometimes he hosted us there. It might have been at something else somewhere on campus. But it was basically like, oh, here's this guy. And I sort of you know, looked at him, shook his hand, and that was about it. Never really thought much more about it. Now, that Michael Dobrinovich, that this retired Air Force officer, for some reason that evening, introduced me to, and that could have been barely coincidental or not, was George Hunt Williamson, but now under a completely different name. 
How did that get revealed to you that that they were one and the same? Well, essentially, by I w- I had run across both of those names before in some of the research I'd done because Michael Dobrenovich was uh, the way I get into it later was was a character that I mostly associated with sort of some kind of fringe extreme right wing organizations. And in particular, a thing that's called the Shikshini Knights of Malta. That's not what they call it, but that's what everybody else calls it to separate it from the other Knights of Malta. A a kind of odd organization that formed uh, in the 1950s and 60s and mostly enlisted, well, oddly enough, or not so oddly enough, uh, retired or not quite so retired intelligence and military officers in it. It was almost completely composed of them. Was it like and a social this, club, or were they actually doing work together? No, it's a. It was a. They saw themselves as a knightly order. It was. It was mm-hmm. a secret society, uh, with mm-hmm. oaths and initiations and ranks. And what they believed they were, were a legitimate extension of the Knights of Saint John, aka the Knights of Malta. In other words, they, oh. they believed that they could trace their lineage all the way back to the Crusades. And to the night, and to the medieval, you know, the the uh, and the ego, ego, ego. <laughs> yes, ego, and and they really can't. I mean, they they are. It was another one of those things that, in terms of its historical legitimacy, it's a fake. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's not a legitimate extension of the of the original Knights of Malta, but that didn't really matter for their purposes. What they needed was an organization, and that gave them that organization. And it's eventually, you know, if you simply begin reading enough things or putting one thing, you find out that that Williamson, around 1961 or 1962, just transforms himself into this other person. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is that that's not the first time he does it, because here again, we're coming up on a break. But the thing about George Hunt Williamson is that he's not really George Hunt Williamson. That's not his real name either. His oh. real name is George Leonard Williamson Jr. <laughs> the plot thickens. <laughs> oh my gosh, how many names he had. I mean like Well there's <laughs> Well and then at some point in college he just decides he's gonna start calling himself Rick Williamson for some reason. I don't know why. I mean, literally, you could, in in the in a yearbook and in the in his freshman year, he's he's George Hunt Williams. Oh no, yeah, he's George Hunt Williamson. And then the next year, he's listed as as Rick Williamson. That seems to have been a nickname that that he adopted at some point. But that's only the sort of beginning of his of his sort of continual. See, this is one of the things. There's this guy. He's he's continually reinventing himself. Hmm. And in in trying to look for a key for that, looking in kind of his early education, one of the things that I dug up was um, his high school yearbook from Chicago. Yes. And 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 guess what he belonged to? Guess what was the outstanding thing listed for him in his high school yearbook? Theater Drama club. Drama <laughs> club. I was yes. right. <laughs> and then when he gets into college, he's involved in drama productions. He's an actor. Mm-hmm. And part of what he does for the rest of his life is he creates roles for himself and he plays them. So we're coming up on the break now. I, I just hold that up. We'll come back to the actor. Okay. We've got our guest tonight is Dr. Richard B. Spence. And he is having a lively conversation about George Hunt Williamson and his many aliases. You're on the other side of midnight, and we'll be back.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. 